You're listening to Theology and Apologetics with Thomas Fretwell, bringing theology to life. If you know me, I love teaching on the Feast of Israel. There's so much truth and scripture that we miss that are related to the Feast of Israel, so I want to pull out some of it as it's related to Yom Kippur today, which is known as the Day of Atonement. And they're not quite there. It starts on Tuesday evening, so they are on the period of the days in between at the moment. Now, in the church, often it's a real shame. We neglect the Feast of Israel. We have this idea that the Old Testament is done away with. We are not required to keep the feasts, as, as we say, in that very legalistic understanding that we have. I'd ask you just to put all of those thoughts out of your mind. They're wrong. They rob you of the richness of the Old Testament and the Bible. We're not talking about keeping the feasts in a legalistic sense. We want to understand the meaning of the feasts the theology behind them, why they were given to Israel, and that is a real exciting study to do, so hopefully we can get into that. Now, just on a very simple basis, this is God's calendar. Like, it's interesting when you think about it that God gave the Israelites a calendar, and he called these things his appointed times. The idea was that you have some in the spring, some in the fall, that's your whole year, is taken up by things that will focus your heart and attention on the plans and ministry and redemptive plan of God. That's a very good way to organize your year. I think because we've been so afraid of engaging in the feast in that way, we've lost that. The the evangelical church are particularly bad at that. We have Easter and we have Christmas, and that's pretty much the only things where we order our year. The biblical feasts are here given to us by the Lord. The liturgical churches like the Anglican churches and and other churches, they're actually better at this than us. They have many feasts. The problem is they make up new ones. Why not just use the ones that are given? But uh, I'm I'm not making a point about that. It's fine to have additional things as long as they don't contradict the Word of God. But we're going to look at Yom Kippur this morning, and it's a fascinating one. So the Feasts of Israel. These are God's calendar, originally given to the Israelites, but I believe they also contain truth that is applicable to the whole world in many ways. You could argue that the whole of human existence is contained within this cycle of feasts, and that'll hopefully become clear what I mean by that as we go through. But we must remember, everything we're studying in Revelation is also connected to these feasts, and I'll hopefully explain that to you at the end of this study a little bit too. Let's turn to Leviticus 23, verses 1 and 2, please, and let's just read this text. The Lord spoke again to Moses, saying, Speak to the sons of Israel and say to them, The Lord's appointed times, which you shall proclaim as holy convocations, my appointed times are these. So these are the Lord's appointed times. So we should pay attention to that phrase. The word holy convocations, it's a very unusual word in Hebrew. And it has has the idea of a rehearsal. It's one of the meanings that it can have. And it's an interesting thought because in these feasts, we see a rehearsal of God's redemptive plan for salvation. The actions that they went through, the sacrifices that they give, all these things that sound so strange to our ears when we're we're reading them in Leviticus, they are but a rehearsal, a prefiguring, a shadow, a pointing towards the fulfillment which we will see is found in Christ. Read with me Colossians 2, verse 16 to 17. Paul says, Therefore no one is to act as your judge, in regard to food or drink, in respect to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath day, these which are a mere shadow of what is to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. So in many ways, these feasts that we're going to study, the seven main ones, foreshadow the work of Christ. 
And for this reason alone, they demand our attention, and we should seek to understand them, lest we miss any revelation about our glorious Lord. And this is what we're going to do. So let me just outline them briefly. You have the spring feasts. We, we deal with these when, I remember I did a Messiah in the Passover, we, we spoke of first fruits on the Resurrection Sunday, and all these different things. They, they are the spring feasts. Passover, unleavened bread, first fruits, and then a little, little way down the line you have Pentecost. And these all teach us something about Messiah. Passover, Jesus the Passover lamb. We understand that. Unleavened bread, this was talking about the sinless body of Messiah. That's why we have the communion elements, unleavened bread. That's the whole idea there. First fruits, this is the resurrection. Christ, the first fruits of the resurrection. And then Pentecost, the giving of the Holy Spirit. You see, so all of these feasts are related to something within the first advent of Jesus Christ. Then you have summer, where there's no feast. And then you have the fall, the autumn comes, and it's harvest time. You have another set of feasts, the ones which Israel are in right now. And they teach us something also about Christ and about his ministry. You have the Feast of Trumpets. This is the regathering. We'll talk about what that means prophetically at the end. Then you have the Feast of Atonement. This is to do with repentance and redemption. And then you have the Feast of Tabernacles. And this is a feast of rejoicing and harvest. Now, if you remember back when we did the spring feasts, I spoke on first fruits, and then I said that they count, don't they? So for the first Sabbath after Passover, there's a 50-day countdown until you get to the Feast of Pentecost, Pente 50, that's where that word comes from. And that was the beginning of the church, so they count them down. And, and the way they do that is it means they're all connected, you see. So they're not separate feasts, like, like basically Pentecost is the final fulfillment of Passover, and all of these things are connected in Jesus' mind. Now, something similar happens with the autumn feasts. You may have noticed on, your, on adverts and social media that last Sunday everyone changes their tiles to say uh, Shana Tovah. They, they wish each other a happy new year. Jewish New Year was celebrated last year. A lot of, uh, even, it's a very secular holiday now, but that was what it was, Jewish New Year. However, although they celebrate it as Jewish New Year now, that's an oddity of history why they do that, I'm not going to go into now, it's actually the Feast of Trumpets that this time is actually celebrating. So Jewish New Year today is the Feast of Trumpets. They've changed that. It's a thing that happened later in history. So we are talking about the Feast of Trumpets when, we, when we're saying around this time right now. And what they do from the Feast of Trumpets, a little like they do when they count down to Pentecost, they have a 10-day period from the Feast of Trumpets to the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur. There's a 10-day countdown, and they call these days the 10 days of repentance, Aseret Yamai Teshuvah. This is like, it's a time of inflection in Israel. Like everyone will search their souls, nothing really goes on. It's a time of mourning, making right with your brothers, and all those sorts of things. Even today, it's considered a very holy day. Time to repent, confess, get right with everyone, and it builds up to Yom Kippur, which is the most solemn day in Israel today. It still is. Now, the Feast of Trumpets, if you've ever heard a shofar being blown, it's obviously associated with trumpets. Trumpets are very biblical. I have got one. They have to blow them in a very specific way on the Feast of Trumpets. So, uh, we, if we can get this to play, uh, just so I give you an idea how these trumpets sound.
Now, if you could imagine that, obviously, they're very loud if you hear these things in person. The idea of this, the trumpet was used in Israel as a time of warning, as a time to gather the armies together, also as a time of celebration and the announce the Jubilee year. Very important events, the trumpet was always there to announce these things. So it was primarily pointing Israel back to who they were, their covenant identity when the trumpets were blown at Sinai, uh, their obligations to the Lord and what is coming. And the idea is Yom Kippur is coming, the Day of Atonement is coming, everyone needs to focus on the Lord and get right with God. That, that was basically the idea of trumpets here at this time. And they start, the trumpets would start the 10-day countdown, these days of awe, these days of dredge as they call them, and they're on like the seventh or something day now of that period in Israel. There's lots of Jewish tradition associated with these 10 days and with the Feast of Trumpets and the Feast of Yom Kippur. One I'll share with you that is relevant, obviously a lot of these are not biblical, there's extra biblical Jewish tradition that's just been added over the years, but one of the things they believe is that at this time, the destiny of the righteous is written in the book of life and the destiny of the wicked is written in the book of death. However, they also say that most people won't be put in either book, instead they're given these 10 days to repent before their fate is sealed on Yom Kippur. And this is not permanently, this is for another year. Because remember, these were celebrated yearly, so that's how they think in this cycle. So that's why today in Israel, even completely non-religious Jewish people, I have no, no regard, never see them in synagogue or involved in any of this, they kind of hedge their bets. And on, on Yom Kippur, they're kind of like, well, you know, I'm gonna, just going to go to synagogue on Yom Kippur to make sure they've got another year. And that happens a lot in, in Israel right now. One of the, the traditional greetings on Yom Kippur is Gemar Chetimah Tovah, which is basically a way of saying, I hope you get sealed this year. Like, it's like good sealing time, like another year. Make sure you do everything to get sealed into another year. Now, of course, this is not biblical. We know that those things don't bring it. But what they are supposed to do is point us to the Day of Atonement, which is where the real truth in this issue lies. So it's a good, a good sealing time for them. And then after the 10 days, you have the Day of Atonement. And this is the, the highest holy day in Israel still to this day. It's a solemn and reflective holiday. Much of what goes on in Israel today with Yom Kippur, again, is extra biblical, traditional elements. But we're going to look at the, the actual elements from the Bible today. It is a time where Israel is pretty much grinds to a halt. I mean, nothing will really go on to, to the point that in today, all the highways, everyone is a big thing. Everyone will get their bikes out, take their kids, and you'll drive on the motorway and your bikes. Like, can you imagine, you know, get your bike, go on the M25? That's the, that's the idea. We'd still manage to form a traffic jam, I'm guessing, if we did that on the M25. But in Israel, all the roads are clear and people go out and play. That's, that's what happens on Yom Kippur in Israel today because everyone is, it's a time of prayer, it's a time of fasting, most people have a fast at this time and they won't be doing, they're supposed to just be reflecting on their lives and on the Lord. But we're going to have a little look at it from Leviticus chapter 16, please, if you turn there. So Yom Kippur is all about the high priest. This is the festival that really focuses on the high priest and the nation. It's not so much concerned with the individual. We like to think in terms of individual in our age. Are you born again individually? What's your This is not how the Bible really talks. It's a communal element that we have here for this. And it's the, it's the high priest and the nation. And you'll see why it has that focus in a moment. The main point of Yom Kippur is the holiness of God. That's really the driving factor of why this holiday is here, the holiness of God. And the central theme of Leviticus is the holiness of God. And I always find it fascinating. If you've ever read Leviticus, if you're new, if you haven't read Leviticus, it's, it's quite a hard book to read. You're reading about a lot of ancient 
things that don't seem to have any application to us, washings, what to do in this situation, what to do, very prescriptive ways that the priests had to deal with certain issues. But you have to understand the reason behind a lot of this is because God was holy and things had to be done in order and he had to be treated right. In Jewish tradition, Leviticus is still one of the most regarded and revered books because of that. We've lost that again in the church. I think it would do, do us well to rediscover the holiness of God in books like Leviticus. That is the central theme. And it's no surprise that you have the feasts of Israel outlined for us in the book of Leviticus. They'd probably more be suited to Deuteronomy or one of these other passages, but you find them in Leviticus that give us the details for these feasts, and particularly the feast of uh, Yom Kippur. It is, yeah, let's turn to Leviticus 16. Let's just read it. We won't read it all in one go. I'll make a few interruptions as we go through. This was a fearful day in the life of a high priest. You could say he, he spent his whole career waiting, his whole year waiting for this day. It was a, it was a full-on day, and we'll, we'll see why. Look at verse 1. Now the Lord spoke to Moses after the death of the two sons of Aaron, when they had approached the presence of the Lord and died. It's a pretty tough way to start this description. And I think that's very interesting. In the introduction to the holiest day of the year, the Lord starts by referencing the two sons of Aaron, or Aaron. Now, you might remember that story. You have to flip back to Leviticus chapter 10 to read it. I'll read it for you. Now, Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, took their respective firepans and after putting fire in them, placed incense on it and offered strange fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded them. And fire came out from the presence of the Lord and consumed them, and they died before the Lord. Then Moses said to Aaron, It is what the Lord spoke, saying, By those who come near me, I will be treated as holy. And before all the people, I will be honoured. You see, this is what I mean. The holiness of God is not something to be taken lightly. It's awe-inspiring, it's serious, it's almost something that we cannot really even imagine. And these two priests, Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, they were going through what they thought they should be doing, but they did not follow the way that God had prescribed he should have the incense burnt on the altar. And they burnt what they call strange fire, their own mix or concoction, even though the Lord had said not to do that. And that shows that they had a disregard for the Lord's commands, for the word of God, and thus ultimately for the holiness of God, and they were immediately consumed. So think about the high priest now. He's preparing to learn about what he has to do on this day where he enters the Holy of Holies. And the first thing it reminds him of do this wrong. Remember those two? I mean, that's basically what is going on here. For that reason, those who come near to me, I will be treated as holy. That, there's no other way to come near to the Lord. You've got to be treated as holy. And this, is, this should get us thinking. Because I'd imagine Nadab and Abihu are probably here. We're probably down here somewhere, particularly with our Lord. How do we come to the Lord as holy? And this is what the whole festival is about. I'm not going to answer that. It's obvious, hopefully, to you, but we want to see it play out through Scripture. How do we become holy and then come near to the Lord, even though he is still the same holy God that we see and read about here? We'll touch on this as we go. God is the only way. God's way is the only way. The way he has prescribed himself to be worshipped is the only way. And there's only one way to come to the Lord, and that is through atonement. And that is what we're going to learn about this morning. This is why I believe this passage has this very unusual introduction, this reminder that these things must be taken very, very seriously. We cannot make up our own ways of worshipping the Lord. People, we do this all the time in the Western world, in the Christian church, all the time. We just go, oh, it's fine, we just do it like this. We add things on, we do what we want, we lower God, we make him wink at certain things and ignore... This is just, the Bible doesn't give us that liberty 
And we shouldn't want to take that liberty because God is holy. Those who come near to him must treat him as holy. He says, I will be honoured. And the best way to do that is to just accept his revelation to us of what he says. Come to him through the way he has said he must be approached. And that is basically the story of the Bible in a nutshell. But let's carry on with reading this passage. We'll we'll read um, from verse 2 to 10 now. So he says, The Lord said to Moses, Tell your brother Aaron that he shall not enter at any time into the holy place inside the veil, before the mercy seat which is on the ark, or he will die, for I will appear in the cloud over the mercy seat. Aaron shall enter the holy place with this, with a bull for a sin offering and a ram for a burnt offering. He shall put on the holy linen tunic and the linen undergarment shall be next to his body and he shall be girded with the linen sash and attired with the linen turban. These are holy garments. And then he shall bathe his body in water and put them on. And he shall take from the congregation of the sons of Israel two male goats for a sin offering and one ram for a burnt offering. And then Aaron shall offer the bull for the sin offering, which is for himself, that he may make atonement for himself and for his household. He shall take the two goats and present them before the Lord at the doorway of the tent of meeting. Aaron shall cast lots for the two goats, one lot for the Lord and the other lot for the scapegoat. And then Aaron shall offer the goat on one which the lot of the Lord fell and make it a sin offering. But the goat on which the lot for the scapegoat fell shall be presented alive before the Lord to make atonement upon it to send it into the wilderness as a scapegoat. Now you understand why when you're reading this in your bed in the morning or with your coffee, it's quite hard to sort of visualise, to understand. This is why generally we, we neglect these books like Leviticus, but they're the ones that actually often you want to spend the time in, like understanding this, really digging out. So ho- hopefully these 10 verses, we can make them come alive for you. They are absolutely fascinating as we go through what is being required here. Aaron the high priest was to enter the holy place. That's the place in the temple that was behind the veil, where the Ark of the Covenant, where the mercy seat stood and the, the lid would have the Shekinah glory of God dwelling upon it. This was a serious, this is the holiness of God here, this is, the, this is why it's such a serious thing that's going on. The Lord's presence would be there in the Shekinah glory. You notice from the text he has to change out of his robes, put these special garments on, wash himself, offer sacrifices before he can approach for himself, for the nation, and then there's this issue with the goats, and we'll go through all of this this morning. So we're going to go through these 10 verses now, make some observations about these instructions, and dig into them a little bit, and they are quite fascinating. First thing that I notice when I read these instructions, if, if you read them in the context of all the other feasts, everything is about the high priest. You read all the instructions for the other feasts, there's always something that the people have to do. They have to bring their sacrifices and their offering, and the priest then does that for them. Not this one. No other priest, this is just the high priest. In fact, there are over 80 verbs, action words, in this little 10 verses that describe the work of the high priest and his work of atonement. There are only four that are related to the people, and that is their response to the high priest's work of atonement. Nothing they do contributes anything to the work of atonement. That is all through the high priest. Now, why do I emphasize this? Why is it emphasized in the text? Quite simply because it teaches us that lesson that you read in the New Testament, nothing we can do can add to our salvation. Nothing we do contributes to the work of atonement. And you'd be surprised. That's not a lot of people, the history of the church in this country, Catholic, Protestant, you know, this is one of the big issues. We don't contribute anything to our salvation, not our good works, not anything like that. 
as good as those things are, be and as commanded as they are commanded us, they are not part of the work of atonement. That is the high priest's job and his alone. That's the first interesting observation. Atonement is received by faith in the finished work of the high priestly sacrifices on this particular day that he offers. Now, did you know in the New Testament there's an entire commentary on this section? There's an entire book, actually, that is a commentary on the book of Leviticus. If you want to understand the book of Leviticus, you need to read the book of Hebrews in the New Testament. You won't understand the book of Hebrews without this background, to be honest. The book of Hebrews uses the themes of the Day of Atonement to explain the theology and apply it to Jesus Christ. Let's turn there, if you have your Bible. I haven't got slides for this. So it's Hebrews chapter 3, verse 1. How does Hebrews present Jesus Christ as the Kohen Gadol, as they say, as the high priest, the great priest there, the Kohen Gadol, the high priest? Hebrews 3, verse 1 says, Therefore, holy brethren, partakers of a heavenly calling, consider Jesus the apostle and high priest of our confession. So that's, that should immediately pique your interest when you're, for a Jewish person particularly when you're learning about the Feast of Atonement. He goes down, turn to Hebrews 9, a little later in the book. He describes, he actually speaks in the language of the ceremony of the Day of Atonement, yet he's putting Christ as the high priest. Watch how he does this. It's, you need to pick up on these references. Hebrews 9, verses 11 to 14. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things to come, he entered through the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this creation, and not through the blood of goats and calves, but through his own blood. He entered the holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkling those who have been defiled sanctify for their cleansing of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? But notice all those references there, going into the holy place. These are all Day of Atonement imagery that he's talking about here, what the high priest had to do on the Day of Atonement, where the nations would be waiting in anticipation to see if he's completed the ritual properly. This was the focus in Israel. And now this writer is saying, no longer, year by year, does the, the, man, the, the sinful high priest who is just a man have to do that. There is a better high priest who has done this once and for all in the heavenly tabernacle, of which the earthly is just a shadow. You see, this is what the whole thing is pointing towards. Let's go back to the Levitical passage. With that in our mind now is the way that the New Testament presents this. What else do we notice? The clothes of the high priest. This is a fascinating element. Verse 4 said, He shall put on the holy linen tunic and the linen undergarments that shall be next to his body. He shall be girded with the linen sash and attired with the linen turban. These are holy garments. Now this is very interesting. Usually the garments of the high priest were dazzling in their splendor, specifically designed to separate them from every other priest. No other priest had these, the golden sashes, the golden turban, that breastplate with the 12 gemstones representing the 12 tribes of Israel on them there. It was to be an amazing sight. People, when they saw the high priest, they were supposed to know this is the, this is the one, this is the one who is in charge of all the others. That's what we have here. Now, that's not what we see on the Day of Atonement. On the Day of Atonement, the high priest was told to remove those things that would separate him from the rest of the priests, the rest of the people, 
and he was to place the simple white linen garments on himself for this ritual. They are the same garments that the majority of the high, that all the high priests, all the other priests rather, would be wearing. And I find this fascinating because it was in those garments that he then had to go offer his blood sacrifices before he could enter the presence of the Lord in the Holy of Holies. Now, think about this. What other high priest do we know that laid aside his glory and became like one of us in order to offer a blood sacrifice? Philippians 2 talks about this. Speaking of Jesus, it says, who, although he existed in the form of God, the glory of the Lord, <laughs> he did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself taking the form of a bondservant, making himself look like just every other human being, being made in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So in this very element of just changing the clothes of the high priest, you have it pictured prophetically of what Jesus Christ would do, the second person of the Godhead, when he stepped down from heavenly glory, willing to take incarnate form in that human flesh. And it says in Isaiah, doesn't it, that he was unrecognizable really from anyone else. He had no stately form or comeliness that we should desire him. He was just a man. He was just like a high priest in the white linen like everyone else, not like the glorious robes of the high priest at this time. He laid that aside so that he could go and offer the Day of Atonement sacrifice. That's the, that's the background to so much of the New Testament language that we read. It's a wonderful picture of Jesus Christ offering himself for us. That's a one observation. Another observation, the two goats. This is an unusual part. You don't read anything like this really in many of the other sacrifices. Two goats were taken and they were told to stand before the tent of meeting or in the temple, I've got on the picture there, but at this time the tent of meeting, the same thing. And lots were cast for the Lord. One of these goats would be designated, the lots were probably the, the Urim and the Thurim, the way that the priests would use that, those stones that they had. One goat was to be taken and killed. The other goat was to be what they called the scapegoat. And this is where that phrase, you've ever heard that phrase, you know, we need a scapegoat. We use it in politics all the time, don't we? Who's going who's gonna to take the fall for everyone? That's how we use it. This is where it comes from, basically, the scapegoat. This is the idea. So that's a Jewish sacrifice reference to the Day of Atonement. It's funny that these things are still in our culture in some ways today, but that's it. One goat was killed, the blood was taken inside and put on the mercy seat by the high priest in all of this ceremony that he would do. Let's talk about that goat first before we move on. It's very interesting, this element, because the rabbis, and they don't really have a proper explanation for this, but they insisted on the way that the blood was to be sprinkled upon the mercy seat. So the high priest had to kill it, take the blood inside from outside, and then he had to sprinkle it on top of that lid that was on top of the Ark of the Covenant. But he had to do that in a very special way. And the, the, the word that they used to describe the priest's motion was kimas leaf. And it's, it's a hard word to, to translate. What it basically means is like a whipping motion. Um, that, that's the idea there. And the Babylonian Talmud says this, Have we not learnt? He sprinkled thereof once upwards and seven times downwards. So once upwards, seven times downwards. And that was done kimas leaf, like the movement of a swinging whip. And what does Kimaslif mean? Rab Judah showed it by imitating the movements of a lasher. So in this moment, think of this culture here. They obviously knew the scour scourging and whipping. And when they were demonstrating, training priests, showing priests what they had to do, 
they were, the rabbis would actually stand there and whip, and that's how they had to put the blood on the mercy seat. Now, I find this fascinating. John 19.1, Pilate then took Jesus and scourged him. Isaiah 53, he was pierced through for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities, the chastening for our well-being fell upon him, and by his scourging we are healed. You see the imagery here just being played out. Over thousands of years this is, from the time of Isaiah written, from the time of Moses when these things were written, to what we see in the first century, to what we can even understand now at this time. So, Let's look at the second goat now. That's the amazing thing about the first goat, and then we have the second goat. This is Leviticus 16.20, you read down a little bit. He says, When he finishes atoning for the holy place and the tent of meeting and the altar, he shall offer the live goat, and then Aaron shall lay both of his hands on the head of the live goat and confess over it all the iniquities of the sons of Israel and all their transgressions in regard to all their sins, and he shall lay them on the head of the goat and send it away into the wilderness by the hand of a man who stands in readiness. The goat shall bear on itself all their iniquities to a solitary land, and he shall release the goat in the wilderness. It's a very unusual thing if you're reading over this to pick up on this. It's, it says there in that last verse, the goat bears the iniquities of the nation, i.e., once the ceremony has been done, the laying of hands and the sins have been symbolically transferred, that goat was then considered to embody that sin, you see. This is the idea here. And because of that, it was then a despised object and it was led away. And at this moment, it would be led through the crowds. The high priest would hand it over and this other priest, it says, the man standing in readiness would lead it out. And at this time, everyone else would stand there and they'd be jeering at it. It was a commotion at this time. It was almost like being led through the crowds to jeering and shouting. That's the idea, because it now embodies the sin of the people. It's a fascinating thought to think about this. Because think about, think about our Lord. Think about what happened. 1 Peter 2. And he, while being reviled, did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judged righteously. And then it says, and he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross. It's exactly the same analogy going on here. This is, this is what the Day of Atonement is pointing towards. Now, there was these two goats. Now, if you notice in verse 5 of Leviticus 16, although we've talked, one goat for the blood, the other goat, the scapegoat there, it refers to these goats as a single offering. It's not two separate offerings, it's a single offering. Verse 5, he shall take from the congregation of the sons of Israel two male goats for a singular sin offering. So it was both parts of these, both considered one singular offering. The slaughtered goat shows the blood sacrifice that God used to make atonement, to satisfy the wrath of God, to deal with that issue of holiness entering the presence of God, while the live goat sent away illustrated that these sins had been removed, not just for the next year, but they were being removed. That was the idea in the prophetic analogy. Now Christ is the high priest, the great high priest, had to fulfill both parts of the sacrifice. And we often talk about the blood sacrifice of Christ, don't we? But we don't often talk about the scapegoat element to it. But you do find these things coming through in Scripture if you, if you're sort of, you can hear about them. Do you remember when John the Baptist saw Jesus? He combined both of these two elements in one statement. It's a very clever bit of theology if you get it there. He says, behold the Lamb of God. We know the Lamb of God was, was the blood sacrifice. And then he said, who takes away the sins of the world? And this is, that's to evoke the imagery 
of also the sins being once and forever removed. And this is again pointing us back to the, to the Day of Atonement. That's what he's doing here. It's the redemption, but also the removal. You need those two parts. He has removed our sins so far from us, as far as the east from the west, you know that verse. This is, this is the idea that's being shared here. Now let me share with you a bit of extra biblical history that we have here that again is fascinating for us as, as believers. The Mishnah, which is the oral law of Jewish tradition, they had a very unusual bit of history that they record about this ceremony on the Day of Atonement. So one of the things they would do is they would tie a red sash around the horns of the goat and they'd take part of it and they'd put it on the door of the temple too. And they would then go through the ceremony and basically what, what would happen to this goat, actually, it doesn't, doesn't say it in the text, but as you, you read, it would get led out to a high cliff and then it would get pushed off the cliff and it would die. And when it died... They recorded, and we don't really have an explanation from this, I mean, it just seems to be an extra-biblical miracle that we have here, that the, door, the, the bit of red rope that they tied on the temple door would turn white. And that is how they knew back then in the temple, the high priest, that the sins had been washed away for another year. And they took this very seriously. They based it on Isaiah 118, your, your sins are as scarlet, though they shall be white as wool. And that is, that is what they did year by year. It signified that God had accepted their sacrifice and their sins were forgiven. Now the Mishnah records that for 40 years before the destruction of the temple, that was 70 AD, the temple was destroyed in 70 AD, for the 40 years before that, the sash on the doors never turned white. And then we ask ourselves, they don't make this association, Christians then make this association, 40 years before 70 AD, what happened then? Jesus offered himself as the once and for all sacrifice. So that brings us back to Jesus. You see, after he, as the great high priest, had offered and entered into the holy place and sprinkled the blood once and for all, this symbolism of the Day of Atonement was no longer taking away the sins of Israel. And they knew that because they, they even record in their writings that this, after this it didn't quite work. The sash never turned right. It's a real unusual bit of history. We don't have much explanation, except that God saw what they were trying to do and he wanted them to know so he did this miracle that we have there, and that is recorded. It's quite fascinating. He offered himself once and for all for that sacrifice for his people. Now today, they have even more problem. And after the temple was destroyed in 70 AD, Judaism changed. So you may notice, like obviously I talk about the Jewish roots of the faith, the biblical role of Israel a lot in this church, but I want to be very clear with you. I'm not advocating for Judaism being on equal footing in that way, because Judaism changed after 70 AD because they had no temple, they had no priesthood in that way, they couldn't go through these ceremonies that they had, so they got together and they changed. So they replaced sacrifice on atonement with things like prayer, things like giving, and things like synagogue replaced the temple. And we call this rabbinic Judaism. It's very different to what we're reading about here, but this is rabbinic Judaism, and that is what you see having today. So even though they're going through, they're having these synagogue services on the Day of Atonement, there's no sacrifices being made. There are, there are some, some sects within the Haredi that will uh, use a chicken and do, they'd have their various rituals. But again, none of these are prescribed by the Bible at this time because just think, the sash no longer turns white. You know, it's, been, it's been done. It's been done by the Messiah at this time. So although we see repentance and prayer and fasting going on in the synagogues, it should evoke us to prayer for the Jewish people at this time. Right? They are, their minds are focused on repentance and on atonement at this time, but yet not in the way that the Messiah would have. And therefore, if you want to know how to pray for Israel at this time, that the Lord would open their eyes to see the great high priest, 
the sacrifice of Yeshua at this time. That's a good way to pray for Israel. Let's make one more observation and then we'll close. And this is about the prophetic fulfillment of the feasts. So we've looked at the history now that just wonderfully points to Jesus Christ, mapping out God's plan of the ages in wonderful detail. And remember, these were to be celebrated every year. That's why I said your whole year is girded around these things that point you back to Jesus. There's wisdom in that. And I think we need to understand that. And that's why we do focus on them at this time. But the prophetic fulfillment is also interesting. The spring feasts, we went through them. Passover, first fruits, unleavened bread you'll notice that all of those spring feasts were fulfilled in the first advent of Jesus Christ. His death, his burial, and his resurrection. That's, yes, that's the first advent. Then we have the long summer, and then you have the autumn feasts. So it makes sense, it's no surprise, that the autumn feasts will all be fulfilled in the second coming of Jesus Christ. This just seems to be the natural flow. First coming, spring feasts, second coming, autumn feasts. And there's a, it's hard to know because we're talking about the future, so there's a bit of variation on what people believe. But generally, the idea is the Feast of Trumpets, that gathering of Israel. You use the trumpet to gather. They make reference to this. If, again, if, you're, if you don't have the Old Testament background in your head when you're reading some of these New Testament passages, you won't pick up on this. And Matthew 24, 31. This is after the second coming, or at the second coming, pretty much. Jesus says, He will send forth His angels with a great trumpet, and they will gather together the elect from the four corners of the end, from the winds, from one end of the sky to the other. This is the regathering of Israel after the tribulation. So we're studying this on Sunday mornings. We've gone through these years, haven't we? At that final moment, remember I said, and the heavens were opened. He comes down to Edom, this place where all these remaining Jews are waiting for the Messiah. Antichrist is attacking them. This is the sort of time period we're looking at after this. And then if you track through the holidays, what comes after trumpets? We've just studied it. The Day of Atonement comes after Trump, the Feast of Trumpets. And that has to do with repentance and redemption. And there are many promises in the Bible that one day Israel will be saved. Like many Jews get saved now, obviously today, but there seems to be this issue of what they call the national repentance and salvation of Israel, fulfilling this feast in many ways. And you find this in the Bible. Zechariah 12.10 a passage that deals again with the second coming. He says, I will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and supplication, and they will look on me whom they have pierced. They will mourn for him as one mourns for an only son, and they will weep bitterly over him like the weeping of a firstborn. Mourning, this is the language of repentance here that is going on. At that moment, they will suddenly realize these ones who are still there at this time, and this is the national salvation of Israel. And the Apostle Paul speaks of this too, Romans 11. He says, I don't want you to be ignorant of this mystery so that you will not be wise in your own estimation. A partial hardening has happened to Israel, which is the still they're in now, which is why they can go through all these ceremonies in Israel and not see the Messiah. There's still that partial hardening. He says that that will happen until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. The fullness of the Gentiles happens right there at the second coming, Revelation 19, that we're talking about. And then he says, the Apostle Paul, Romans 11:26 and so all Israel will be saved. That's the point here, it's the fulfilling of these feasts. And then after that you have tabernacles, which is the feast associated with rejoicing and gathering together, this is the millennium. We, we won't talk about that here today. But you see, the feasts are a perfect order of God's plan of salvation, laid down for them right back in the few early books in Leviticus, in the beginning of the Bible, basically, played out through history, through thousands of years, still 
celebrated in many ways around the world today, but yet in a state of partial blindness by many people. That's again another thing we need to pray for when we're praying for Israel. But I think as Christians here today, as believers, we need to understand the theology behind all these feasts. It enriches your understanding of Jesus, the work that he did, and as you read the New Testament, you'll realise almost every book a writer will make a reference to a feast in terms of theology. It's all, all through the New Testament, so we ignore it really at our own peril. And one day, as the first feasts were all fulfilled, all of those autumn feasts will also be fulfilled too. And this ties in with our Revelation studies again, but I think for now let's also pray that the Lord would speak to the Jewish people, that he would grant them repentance and sacrifice in this time by his Spirit, that he would reveal Yeshua as the great high priest, as the Kohen Gadol, and that they would come to know him as Saviour. You've been listening to Theology and Apologetics. This podcast is supported by your generous donations. To help us continue to bring you great content, please visit our Patreon site at patreon.com slash theologyandapologetics. If you've been blessed by this podcast, please leave us a review and remember to connect with us on social media. For more resources, please go to theologyandapologetics.com. Thanks for listening.